evidence and answers. How old is the universe and the earth? There are three views Christians hold regarding the age of the earth. Young earth creationism, old earth creationism, and theistic evolution. At the 2023 Evidence and Answers Conference, a panel of Christian scholars of the various views discussed this question. Listen to this fascinating discussion as our speakers discuss the age of the earth. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today's questions and answers session is taken from the 2023 Evidence and Answers Apologetics Conference. Pat hosts this conference each year and brings out Christian scientists and scholars from across the country. Listen to this fascinating discussion as our speakers discuss the age of the earth. Now, here's part one. As you have noticed last night, we have our speakers have two different positions regarding the age of the earth. And so we're going to have a dialogue on that issue that often it's a uh, debate that has been going on for quite a while. So let's begin with you, uh, Dr. Ross. First, explain to us briefly your position. It's called Old Earth Creationism. Briefly explain that one to us. Yes, I mean, uh, it's the idea that the days of, of creation in Genesis chapter 1, rather than being six consecutive 24-hour periods, are six consecutive long periods of time. It's a position where we believe that Adam and Eve were specially created by God relatively recently. So I think we all agree that Adam and Eve are specially created and recently created. I mean, it's the last creation miracle that uh, God had performed. So it's not an issue over uh, Adam and Eve, nor is it an issue over evolution. I think we all agree that you know, naturalistic evolution can't happen under a young earth scenario or an old earth scenario. Okay. Oh, by the way, I, f I forgot. I need to introduce the panel. <laughs> Dr. Hugh Ross, with Reasons to Believe, represents the old earth creationist position. You have Dr. Evan Kawamura. He has his PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Hawaii. He also works with NASA. So he'll be representing the young earth position. So it's easy to remember, right? Young guy, young earth, <laughs> old guy. Oh. Does physical age have anything to do with your position on the age of the earth? No, I was old earth when I was young. Oh, too. okay. <laughs> but then we have uh, Dr. Richard Howe. Uh, Richard, you're an old guy, but you hold to the young earth position. Shouldn't you be here? Well, What's I know it's on? at least 67 years old. <laughs> the earth, the earth is. Although I think the first few years I have on hearsay. Mm, so. Okay. All right, so that's our panel here. All right. Oh, so Dr. Ross is an old earth creationist. You believe in a literal Adam and Eve and right. a fall and a garden of Eden and all that. Right, right. Okay. Now, is old earth creation position just another form of what's known as theistic evolution. Is there a difference here? Uh, there's a major difference. In fact, our Reasons to Believe scholar team did a two-views book with BioLogos. That's a, a Christian team that holds to a theistic evolution position. Theistic evolution is the uh, position that God worked through mutations, natural selection, gene exchange, and epigenetics to produce the life we see here on Earth. He basically worked through the naturalistic processes. Whereas we hold the position that, yes, these processes do operate, but they don't produce much. And so uh, the fossil record, the history of life on planet Earth, is predominantly explained by divine miraculous interventions, and many of them. Yes, and is there a danger 
some people are asking, that if you take the old earth creationist position, is there a danger, a slippery slope that you'd be sliding into Darwinism? Well, I think it's fundamentally based on uh, most young earth creationists believe that when God said what he created was very good, that meant there was no death at all. And so the fact that the old earth position has plants and animals dying uh, before Adam sinned, they see that as counter to what Genesis 1 is teaching. They say that can't be very good. So, and on that basis, uh, they would say, well, we're going to need to have the herbivores rapidly evolve into carnivores at the fall of Adam. And they also hold to, I think it's important to realize, the young earth position came out of a global flood model. So the global flood interpretation gave rise to young earth creationism. It's not the other way around. And uh, with the flood, there's a limited number of animals you can have on board the ark. So they claim that the few thousand species on board the ark rapidly evolved into the millions we have on the planet today. And so a core feature of young earth creationism is a belief that this naturalistic evolution happens very rapidly and very efficiently. Whereas old earth creationists take the position, it's not rapid, it's not efficient. It may be able, capable of producing some new species, depending on how you define a species, but you're not going to get new classes. You're not going to get new families or orders or phyla uh, through those mechanisms. And interestingly, atheist paleontologists now admit that, that you know, if it's naturalistic evolution, you get a proliferation of species, and if you wait a long time, you get new genera. Wait much longer time, you get new families. The problem is, when you look at the fossil record, you see the exact opposite. The phyla show up first, then the classes, then the orders. Last of all, you get the proliferation of species. And as James Valentine has written in peer-reviewed literature, this is the exact opposite of what you'd expect from a materialistic or naturalistic interpretation. Yes. Well, let's move to the young earth side now. Dr. House, when we're talking young earth creationism position, how old do we say the earth and the universe is? Well, as I said, I'm at least 67 years old. I got that <laughs> in already. got my joke in. I think the, the range is anywhere from about 6,000 if you go to Bishop Usher to somewhere around 10,000 that I've heard uh, as an outside limit from Old Testament young earth creationists. So it's probably somewhere within that spectrum. Yes. Now, Richard, you know, what is at the heart of the debate here? Some people say that this is an inerrancy issue, or you've given up the inspiration of the Bible if you hold to a position like what Dr. Ross holds. Is that the issue here? This is probably the most important thing to me that we communicate at this conference, that I think that it's not that. And, I, and so in that respect, I'm different from every other young earther that I know except the ones that at the seminary. There are a few at our, at our seminary, Southern Evangelical. In other words, while I may disagree with Dr. Ross in terms of how we interpret the days of Genesis or these kinds of things, in my perspective as a young earther, it's a matter of just how do we understand both the science and the scriptures. But in this case, we're talking about the scriptures. So that I am very comfortable and actually go to the mat to defend Dr. Ross's fealty and commitment to the inerrancy and authority of the scriptures. And so it's just a, it's a family dispute over the interpretation of Genesis. And the reason I emphasize that is I came to realize how much animus there was in this debate where some leadership in the young earth community, which in many respects I would identify with in terms of their conclusions, were nevertheless characterizing the old earth position 
as if somehow they were compromising the authority of the Bible. And I go, I could understand perhaps examples of things that someone who professes to be a Christian, an example of something, some position they take, that I might say, well, you just don't believe the Bible. Like, for example, if somebody said, well, I'm a Christian, I believe in the inerrance of the Bible, I just don't believe Jesus ever existed. You just go, okay, well, that, that's just crazy. I mean, you, you might disagree with a lot of things, but if you say you believe the Bible, you can't just say that Jesus never existed. It obviously taught that Jesus existed. So what would be a better position if you thought Jesus didn't exist is just to say, I think the Bible is just wrong, all right? But obviously not everything's that way. So there's lots of disputes that have peppered church history where even though they can get enthusiastic you know, in the debate, we nevertheless acknowledge the other side of a, the debate as still being within the family of God. Like, say, the Calvinist-Arminian debate. Okay, so I had, I had a brother who was a, a five-point Gordian Calvinist Presbyterian pastor, but he would never have characterized an Amaraldian or an Arminian or any of those non-Calvinists, he would have never characterized them as, well, they just don't believe the Bible, or they just are compromisers or things. They might say, well, they're not very good, you know, Bible interpreters, and that's part of the debate. That's how I would like to see this debate move towards, especially in the U.S., is that the, one last thing I know, I told the audience last night that I'm thinking about starting a blog called More Than You Wanted to Know, uh, (laughs) because I'm telling you more than you wanted to know. I regret that the leadership of a lot of the young earth community that, with whom I'm familiar, they've created a ghetto. So they're a community of Christians who are talking to each other, and I think they misinterpret the echo they're hearing as being formative in their arguments. In other words, oh, we've really got a good case because everybody around them is affirming the same conclusions. And so they've insulated themselves in some strategic ways from the rest of the body of Christ to have a robust debate. And I know this from personal experience because we have the longest-running and largest apologetics conference in the U.S. done through Southern Evangelical Seminary. And I I can tell you how hard it has been. I don't organize the debate, but I'm there as a faculty with the staff that are putting the debate together, how hard it's been to get young earth creationists to come to an apologetics conference and make their case because they almost feel like what I would imagine a Christian would feel like if they were asked to go to a Mormon conference. You know, if you were invited to a Mormon conference, say, hey, would you be willing to come give your position? You'd happily do that. Say, I'd love to give you my position as an evangelical in contradistinction to Mormonism. But while you were at the Mormon conference, you would know, I'm not really part of this. You know, that's the way they acted. I actually asked one of them, I said, you act like, almost like we're a cult and that you're not really part of this family. And he kind of laughed and accepted that characterization. Well, I regret that because I think if, if there's ever going to be any advance in this that's productive, that doesn't detract from the glory of God, we've got to figure out some way to get rid of the animus and the mischaracterization where well, these people are compromisers. I was actually called a compromiser mm. uh, by one of these leaders. So it's like, wait a minute, I'm a young author. How could I be a compromiser in that mm-hmm. regard? Anyway, that's more than you wanted to know. Yeah, and so how did we, we heard uh, last night how Dr. Ross came to his position. How did you come to your position that the earth is young? So uh, to me, uh, initially, it was more or less just a default in terms of how I understood Genesis. That was one thing just taking it prima facie, day one, morning, evening, that just sounded like regular days. But then as I was growing a little bit, now I was saved as a pinheaded teenager at 16, so you have to sort of 
interpret it in that context as to how much I could really process some of this stuff. But for better or for worse, my initial introduction to the scientific debate regarding creation was Young Earth Material, Institute of Creation Research, Henry Morris, Mm -hmm. for example, which, by the way, back to your point about inerrancy, Henry Morris signed the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy Chicago Statement, which is the definitive uh, document uh, sort of circumscribing how evangelicals, broadly speaking, have understood the doctrine of inerrancy. And even though Henry wouldn't sign a more attenuated statement regarding science over the days of the uh, Genesis, he did sign the overall statement on inerrancy because he understood the doctrine of inerrancy is broad enough to allow these different interpretations of Genesis. So it was the combination of a prima facie reading of Genesis mm-hmm. plus my first inaugural experiences with Institute of Creation Research and Henry Morris. Mm-hmm. Now, Evan, you're, you're uh, the young earth scientist here. Some people have trouble with the scientific evidence and holding to a young earth position. So can you give us scientific evidence for a young earth? Yes, I thought you'd never ask. So <laughs> I brought some notes with me. So as Dr. Howe mentioned, Institute for Creation Research, here are five global evidences for young earth. So you can look at continental erosion. It happens a lot quicker than we thought. Another one is ocean salt accumulation. So there's a lot of salt in the ocean. It builds up very rapidly. And if you kind of go back in time, the oceans could be at least or at most 62 million years old. That's how they come up with that idea. And then if you look at Earth's magnetic field, that would be the third one. It's decaying. The Earth is losing electrical current. So the magnetic field gets weaker over time. They say that we know Earth's magnetic field is losing 50% of its energy every 1,400 years or so. And so therefore, Earth's magnetic field could be only 20,000 years old at most. And so since we have a decaying electrical current within Earth's core, it could maintain a magnetic field for 6,000 years or so, which is very reasonable and fits, as Dr. Howe mentioned, Usher's calendar. The fourth one is surviving radiocarbon in old specimens. So you've heard of like carbon dating. So radioactive carbon decay occurs so quickly that even the most sensitive scientific instrument shouldn't be able to detect any radiocarbon in a sample even 100,000 years old. Yet, ironically, we see tons of radiocarbon in coal, oil, natural gas, and dinosaur bones, which have been dated to be millions of years old. So there might be something going on over there. We also find radiocarbon in diamonds, which are supposedly billions of years old. But again, how can you detect this accurately in a sample that's even 100,000 years old? And then finally, the fifth point they mention is helium in old zircons. It sounds like it's from Star Trek or something. What happens is you have these zircon crystals, and it has helium and lead inside, and they decay radioactively. And so you can look at the rate of how the lead decays or how fast the helium decays. And let me jump down a little bit. So they look at something called the leakage rate. The more scientific term is called diffusivity, which is like if you take a balloon, it's going to lose some of the helium eventually... If you suck it in, your voice isn't going to sound funny. So you can do something similar for these zircon crystals. You can look at how the lead leaks out of the crystals or how the helium leaks out the crystals. So you have two different metals you can look at. And so if you look at just the lead one, you're going to say that the zircon crystals are about billions of years old. But if you look at the helium, you would say the zircon crystals are only thousands of years old. So you get a very, very different measurement and time there. So it depends on what you want to look at. But either way, we find evidence of accelerated nuclear decay. 
So in summary, again, if you're taking notes, the five or continent erosion is faster than we thought. The second one is ocean salt accumulation. The third is Earth's decaying magnetic field. Fourth is radiocarbon in old specimens. And then the last one is the helium in old zircons. Well, Hugh, you state that the universe uh, is billions of years old. What scientific evidence do we have that we know it's that old? Oh, I think I need the opportunity to respond to your five, if that's acceptable. Okay. Yeah. I mean, when you look at uh, radiocarbon, you do see them in diamonds. You do see them in zircons. You see them in things that measure to be billions of years old. For the simple reason that Earth's crust is filled with uranium and thorium and nitrogen. And so, like, in the atmosphere, you get cosmic rays coming through that convert the nitrogen into carbon-14. That also happens in the crust of the Earth, not because of cosmic rays, but because of the residual uranium and thorium. These are radioisotopes. And so that's the energy source that converts. And this is going to keep going on and on and on. So you're going to get a residual level. And what's interesting, when you look at the diamonds and the zircons, anything that measures to be really old, you get what's called a baseline carbon-14 date of about 58,000 years. And radiocarbon has a half-life of 5,715 years. And so uh, you get a reliable date within a factor of seven. You know, one-seventh to seven times is where you're going to get a reliable date. The 58,000 is outside that range, but the 58,000 is exactly what you'd expect given the amount of uranium and thorium and nitrogen in the crust of the earth. And so whenever we scientists see something that's 58,000 years, like carbon-14, we say that's just the background level. Everything's going to measure to be 58,000 years given that it's sufficiently old. So it's indication that it's old. The magnetic field... Young Earth creationists presume that Earth's magnetic field is declining in a linear fashion. That's not the case. It's sinusoidal. And right now it is going down. In the future it will go up. In the past it's been going up. So it sinusoidally uh, varies between about one-tenth of a gauss and about eight-tenths of a gauss. And this has been going on throughout the whole history of the Earth. It's well understood by our understanding of Earth having a solid core of nickel and iron and cobalt and a surrounding liquid core, and we actually predict that there will be these random reversals. So every few thousand to every hundred thousand, several hundred thousand years, uh, the Earth's magnetic field flips like this. When you do get a flipping over, you go from a dipole to a multipole, and right now we're heading down towards a multipole level. So we anticipate our magnetic field will decline down to about a tenth of a gauss. And then you get a polar reversal and it goes back up to eight tenths of a gauss. So that's two of your five. What's one of the, what was one of the other ones? Ocean salt accumulation. Ocean salt accumulation. There again is the assumption that the salt accumulates in a linear fashion. You know, there are salt mines in the continental U.S., and so what's happening is that you get these salt lakes or, you know, salt seas, and they get uh, trapped by landmass, it evaporates, and you get a salt deposit. It's the plate tectonics that recycles that salt. So if you look over the long-term history of the Earth, the total salt content is constant, but it shifts locations. 
you know, the rivers wash off the land masses. They take the salt that's there and put it in the ocean, but different parts of the ocean get isolated and you get a salt concentration, but it's plate tectonics that explains why that salt gets recycled from the landmass to the ocean, from the ocean back to the landmass uh, that's been going on. And what was the fourth one? Continental erosion. Continental erosion. Continental erosion varies over the course of the Earth. And the argument from the young Earth position is that if you look at continental erosion, that eventually would cause all the mountains and land masses to be reduced to a level barely above sea level. But what they're not taking into account is volcanoes and plate tectonic activity. So plate, you know, volcano, I mean, here in Hawaii, uh, these are volcanic islands. And uh, what you see here in Hawaii, by the way, the state of Hawaii is unique amongst the 50 states of the union in that it's the one state that's getting bigger and bigger as time goes on. Why? Because the volcanic activity that's producing new land masses is greater than the erosion rate. It's good news for H1, it's bad news for Kauai, because in Kauai, volcanism has stopped, and uh, you've got quite aggressive erosion, and Kauai is getting smaller and smaller, but the big island's getting bigger and bigger. So the total land area of Hawaii is actually increasing in spite of what's happening uh, here on Oahu. Oahu's getting smaller, too. So uh, you might want to invest in land here because it's going to get more and more uh, dear as the land masses uh, disappear. And so there again, we need to take into account that it's not just erosion. There's plate tectonics. There's volcanism. And actually, what you see over the course of the Earth is something that I mentioned in my talk on Thursday night is that actually the buildup of land masses is slightly greater than the erosion rate. Right now, 29% of planet Earth is covered by continents and islands. In the future, it'll rise to 30%. So the buildup of land masses is actually slightly greater than the decay rate as a result of erosion. What was number five? Helium and old Oh yeah, helium. Okay, I've worked with helium as a physicist. It's the slipperiest of all the elements in the periodic table. You just can't contain it. Lead, on the other hand, is really heavy and very stable. And so no physicist would ever use the quantity of helium in any sample as an age indicator. It just slips around, moves in and out so easily. The lead, however, is stable. It's not going to be moving. And so how we date samples is that You've got uranium-238, uranium-235, thorium-232, and they decay into three different isotopes of lead. So uranium-232 decays into lead-208, uranium-235 into 207. From his thorium, that makes 208. Uranium-235, 207. Uranium-238 makes 206. So what physicists do is they will take a sample, they ignore the helium, because that just moves in and out so easily that it's a useless dating tool. And they look at the three isotopes of lead, thorium-232, uranium-235, uranium-238, and they wind up with six independent radiometric tools to date the sample. And we know we're dealing with a pure sample if all six methods give the identical age. And it's through this technique that physicists have been able to date the Earth with high precision, Using those six methods, we get a date for the age of the Earth, 4.5662 billion years, plus or minus 0.0001 billion. We actually have it nailed down to five places of the decimal. 
Now, one gas we can use to get a rough estimate of age is argon. Unlike helium, argon is heavy. Uh, it also is a little bit slippery, but nothing like helium. And so, for example, you've got potassium on the moon that's decaying into argon. Potassium-40 decays into argon. And so, on the moon, we say it has no atmosphere. Not true. It's got a thin argon atmosphere. And by measuring, and the argon comes 100% from potassium decay. Our time for today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Would you or your church be interested in having Pat speak or host an apologetics conference? Just give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And while you're there on our website, take a look around. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. Use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio free to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, you can find a link to donate on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>